0: Good morning, First Baptist. Well, just when you thought they couldn't come up with another greeting card, guess what? They have. They have found a group that has not yet been marketed to in the land of greeting cards. And you would never guess the group to whom this card is being marketed It is those who are involved in an affair. I I kid you not. It's called the Secret Lover Line. And uh, this is their mission. They are committed to providing a greeting card collection with empathy and understanding without judgment to lovers involved in a secret relationship. Yeah, the woman behind the collection is a lady named Kathy Gallagher. And she says she launched into this so that the unfaithful would know how to express their emotions. And she said there's a huge untapped market. Now you may be asking yourself, how do they go about marketing to this particular group? She said there's not going to be a banner in the stores that say, infidelity, get your cards here. It's going to be much more subtle than that. It's going to be under labels like uh, love expressions and intimacy. And the slogans inside the cards will say things like, I used to look forward to the weekends, because the weekends is that you'd spend your spouse with. I used to look forward to the weekends, but since we met, they seem like an eternity. And for the special holiday occasions, as we each celebrate with our families, I will be thinking of you. Um, It seems that unfaithfulness has become part of the fabric of our society. Um, In relationships, obviously, but also in other areas as well. What about something that we believe that God has given us to do? What if there are people here this morning, and I bet there are, and you've been serving the Lord in a particular area for a very long time? Maybe you're working with kids. Maybe you're teaching. Maybe you're leading. Or whatever your your vocation may be, the kind of work you're doing, this is all service to God. And frankly, maybe you're getting a little weary of the whole thing. You're getting weary in doing good. What happens when we're tempted to be unfaithful to the calling that God has put on our life? And I get it. Maybe you feel unappreciated. Maybe your kids have driven you to the edge. There was a situation in West Virginia that I recall where a woman had a a child with special needs and she got to the point where she just couldn't take it anymore and she took the life of two of her kids and her own. I don't know where you may be today, but the topic I want to talk to you about this morning is how do we stay faithful to our calling? How do we Keep ourselves in that place where we know God wants us to be. We're using the gifts that he's given us, and yet we're really close to throwing in the towel. The passage we're going to look at this morning comes from the book of Joshua. This morning we'll be in Joshua 15 and 16. I'd like to start out with Joshua 15 and read verses uh, 1 through 8. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Joshua 15, verses 1 through 8. Judges, I'm sorry. Judges 15, one through eight. (laughs) After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. You may be seated. We're continuing into the book of Judges, and the people of Israel, they're in a time when they had no king. There was no sheriff in town among the Israelites, and they're struggling. You see it again and again and again. You see these very complicated characters, these judges coming on the scene. God raises them up as deliverers, and things go well for a little while. Then they go south, and again they're oppressed, and God raises up another judge. This is the last judge we're going to be seeing in the book of Judges. Samson and last week we saw the wonderful graciousness of God in the life of Samson all of these divine initiatives that God had taken and all these things that God had given to, to Samson witnessing that it causes the reader to think to themselves well will Samson live up to his calling and responsibility and will he respond to all the gracious divine initiatives in his life how what's he going to do with this how's he going to handle as a matter of fact the question can come to ourselves what are we going to do with God's divine initiatives in our lives? His gifting, those gifts which the Holy Spirit bestow upon us when we become Christians. What are we going to do with those? We're going to talk about that this morning. And this idea of calling, as a matter of fact, go like this passage. We'll look at two uh, rebellious responses to God's calling and gifting. The first is seeking vengeance. We'll see that in the life of Samson talk about the subtle ways we do it ourselves and then we'll talk about seeking an easier path samson was really looking to do things his own way and sometimes we do too and i want to unpackage this idea what do we mean by calling frankly i think it's one of the most confusing things that we as christians kind of work and muddle our way through is this idea of calling and then finally we'll talk about how do we stay faithful to the calling that god has given us the good works He's called us to do. So I want to start going through this passage, and we'll start there um, at the beginning of chapter 15. And first of all, we'll see the way that Samson rebelled against his calling through revenge. Now, the Israelites knew that revenge was not theirs to take. That's clear from Deuteronomy chapter 32. However, that did not stop Samson, because he goes taking revenge with zero account for God Or God's people. We just read about this incident with the foxes in the fire. It almost seems like some kind of a fraternity stunt that Samson's pulling here to to seek revenge on these Philistines for something that they'd done. He ties up these 300 foxes and puts a torch on them, and they torch this field. Then that sets off the Philistines, and they go and they burn his his wife and his father-in-law And he's not going to take that laying down. And the text says to them, literally, in verse 8 there at the bottom, and he struck them hip and thigh. Now, that's referring to like a wrestling move. You were to say to someone, I'm going to take you on, and we're going to go head to head, toe to toe. That's what Samson is saying here, taking them hip and thigh. And he he takes all of them on, and, and he's going to exact revenge on them. And then he says, I'll quit. Yeah, right. He's not going to come anywhere close to quitting. It doesn't work that way. And after he does this thing, the Philistines aren't going to let that go. And a group of them are going to go, and they're going to raid this place called the High. Uh, And they they come up against these men of Judah. And the men of Judah said, why are you doing this? And they said, we want Samson. So 3,000 of these Judaites, that's about how many it takes, I think, to control Samson, 3,000 of these Judaites go and they find Samson. That's where we pick it up in verse 14. It says, when he came to Lahai, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Now, the the men of Judah have have bound up Samson and they've brought him now to the Philistines because the Philistines say, we want to exact revenge on Samson. It says, when he came to Lahai, referring to Samson, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire. And his bonds, it says, melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. You can imagine the mess of 1,000 men being killed by the jawbone of a donkey. So, this is brutal. He stacks up a thousand corpses. The text says he heaps the bodies on top of each other. And then I want to go down to the end of chapter 16 and and come to this final part of Samson's life. I'm going to go back and talk about the things that happened between there, uh, but I want to focus on this theme of revenge right now in Samson's life. So by the time we get to verse 23 of chapter 16, Samson's lost basically everything. As a matter of fact, Uh, In verse 19, it says he's lost his hair, he's lost his strength. And then look what it says in chapter 16, verse 20. And she said, this is a woman named Delilah. You'll learn about her in a minute. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. See, he's lost the source of his strength. In addition to that, it says in verse 21 that his eyes had been gouged out. By the way, it's interesting. How many times did we read in the previous chapter that Samson did what was right in what? In his own eyes. Isn't it ironic that God has now removed those eyes from the equation? So Samson's this laughingstock to the Philistines. He's serving as their entertainment They believed that their God, Dagon, had delivered Samson to them. And now they can do with him as they please. So they set him up between two pillars. And it says in verse 26, Samson said, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. And there were 3,000 men and women inside this house where Samson is now present. And then we pick it up in verse 28. And, and listen closely, especially to, S- to Samson's prayer in these verses. It says, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me, only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This final act in his death was more effective than anything he'd done in his life. Now, uh, this is a tragic end to the life of Samson. And look very carefully what he says in the beginning of that prayer. Why does he want to accomplish this? He says that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now this is interesting. Notice Samson doesn't take into account the reputation of God. This has nothing to do with the plans of God. This has nothing to do with his fellow Israelites. This is about him wanting vengeance he wants to be avenged and all of these things are a selfish plea and he's he's doing something god blesses it it's consistent with god's plan in wiping out the canaanites however he's doing it for all the wrong reasons god had placed upon samson this nazarite vow He was to be faithful. He was set apart. He was consecrated in a special way to do God's will, to wipe out these Philistines. And instead, he's seeking out his own self-glorying revenge right to the very end. You know, when we take revenge, when we take vengeance into our own hands, we are taking on the role of God. We're doing what only he is supposed to be doing. That's what Samson is doing here. See, revenge in our lives is not in alignment with God's will. It's actually rebellion against Him. Yeah, I think we typically seek out revenge because we believe that we're justified in it. We think that in some way it's the right thing to do. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of a story that I heard about a mother who heard her son screaming in his bedroom. So he goes in there and he sees what's going. She sees what's going on and sees that his Little two-year-old sister is pulling his hair. And she says, no, honey, you need to stop doing that. And she looks at her seven-year-old son and says, you know, she, she doesn't understand. She, she doesn't know that, that it's hurting you. So she walks back out of the room into the hallway. Then she hears her little girl screaming. So she comes back into the room and, and says, well, well, what's going on here? And her son looks at her and says, well, now She knows. That's kind of how we feel, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of little subtle ways that we tend to want to take revenge. Um, maybe you become angry with somebody. Maybe it's a lifetime friend or a family member. Doesn't it seem like that's just the way? Let's say that you're with a, a, a longtime friend or a family member, and what are they do? They bring up some painful memory of the past, and you kind of laugh. But then what do you do? Oh, but do you remember when you did this? Or maybe you're much more passive-aggressive than that. Maybe you put out a little something on on Facebook that's a subtle dig at somebody. Or Instagram, or you out someone, or you direct message somebody with some nasty comment. (laughs) See, I've had to to call and apologize to people for passive-aggressive things I've put on Facebook. It happens, right? we do these things we seek out this revenge sometimes we think it's out of justice but see we can expect God to put difficult people in our lives and revenge is never the right response for what they do I'm reminded of this promise from God Romans twelve nineteen. He's it's actually <coughs> quoting a psalm vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord this is why we don't need to take vengeance into our own hands. It's always rebellion. It's never consistent with the calling that God places on us. But see, sometimes it looks like the easier way to go. And we have a tendency sometimes to seek an easier path than the one that we may find ourselves on. We see this in the life of Samson. We already saw all the times that he gave in to these selfish pleasures that he has. And we see first at the beginning of chapter 16 Uh, He has a brief fling with a prostitute, which is all kinds of wrong. Then he goes in that same city. He destroys the city gates. This is all 16, uh, verses 1 through 3. Um, He leaves the city open to attack by destroying its gates. And then we get to verse 4. And now he finds himself with a mistress, a woman by the name of Delilah. And we pick it up in chapter 16, verse 4, and it says... think we're locked up. Well, I'll just read it. And verse 4 says, After this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Now, you would think some red flags may go up in Samson's mind, wouldn't you? If if she's saying these kinds of things to him. But he's a little slow on the draw. Or maybe he just doesn't care. Um, So he sets himself up for disaster. She's going to try three times to get Samson to tell her, what is the secret to your strength? Now, by the way, there's something very interesting about that, because when I picture Samson, I picture a a huge muscle man, right? An Arnold Schwarzenegger type. However, if it was clear that his muscles were the source of his strength, she would probably not be asking this question. So he could very very well look like me, or any of us. Well, maybe not some of you, but a lot of us. Because it's confusing as to what is the source of his strength. So he lies to her three times about what the source of his strength is. But then the fourth time, he relents. And notice verse 17. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak. And be like any other man. Now, the last part of that verse, weak like any other man, uh, is not a great translation because there's a subtle difference between how he's responded the previous three times to how he responds this time. Uh, The previous three times, he says this He said, If you do this, I'll become weak like any other man. But the Hebrew shifts just a little bit. And in this last time, he says, He'd become weak like every man. Now, frankly, doesn't Samson want to just be like every man? Hasn't he been acting like every man, those Philistines that he's been around, having these affairs, completely ignoring what it was that God was setting him apart to do? He just wants to be like every man. He wanted to rid himself of this vow before God, lose the hair, and just be like everybody else. See, he had figured out what was right in his own eyes. And that's what he wanted. So in telling Delilah the source of his strength doing full well what she would do, he gives it up. He's willing to lay it all down. He would figured out what was right in his eyes, and it's going to mean his death that's going to come at the end of the chapter. See, fleshly desires can prompt someone to abandon the divine call that someone places on their life maybe it's comfort maybe it's an affair how many pastors have lost their churches and their families because they've had some kind of an illicit affair but that also begs this question about well what do we mean by calling Uh, and i think this word in association with the christian life can be very very confusing so i want to unpack it uh, just a little bit uh, for a moment because see when we talk about calling there is this general call to salvation. If you're sitting here this morning, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you were called by God. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the call, the general call to salvation. And by the way, you can trust Christ right now. If you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've got any at all confusion about whether or not you've done that, please come and talk to me. It's got nothing to do with your works. It's got everything to do with faith in what Jesus has done. Come and talk to me at the end of the service if you're unsure about that. But that's the general call to salvation. But then there's this other idea. See, in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, That God prepared beforehand so we may do them. So there's this good works thing. There are these good works that we're supposed to be doing after God saves. It says He's prepared them beforehand for us to do. But what's the golden question? Um, So when I became a Christian, was somebody supposed to hand me a card that listed the things that I was supposed to be doing? My job, who I was supposed to marry. All those things. Was that supposed to happen somewhere along the way? would it be nice if a little piece of paper just fluttered down from heaven that had on it, here's, okay, you're, you're a Christian now, here's what you're going to do. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Um, how do we determine this? I want to give three, three principles that I believe could be very helpful in determining this sense of calling, these good works that we have been set apart to do. First of all, it has to do with your head using your head and asking yourself, well, where am I a good fit? Um, If you feel like God is calling you to the NBA and you've never played basketball and you're 45 years old, (laughs) think again. Probably that's not the case. Think about how you've been gifted. What has God given you gifts to do? So use your head in the process. But it's not just the head. See, we aren't just Intellectuals, See, there's also the heart. What are my God-given passions? And that, that is the God-given part is so important. Obviously, if you've got a passion for something sinful, God is not calling you to that. But what do you want to do? I remember when we were looking at churches, when my wife and I were trying to figure out, Lord, where do you want us to go next? There was one in a very, very uh, rural area. And I I was seriously considering this, and I thought, well, I I, I just, I don't want to be there. And uh, I I thought, well, Lord, is that a good enough reason? But then I started thinking, you know what? There is someone who would love to be in that very place. Let someone who loves to be there be there. So your heart, your desires, your God-given desires are part of the process too. But it's not just your head and your heart, it's also your hands. Where has God produced fruit? Where have you seen him working? Uh, If you teach and people learn, God's producing fruit there. If you share the gospel, and people get saved. Um, If if you can lead people, they follow you. If, If you can turn a wrench, if you can make a meal, if you've seen God blessing some particular area, the fruit of your hands. Pay attention to that. See, it's all these things working together. We are whole people. And we need to take in every part of ourselves. By the way, if you're just good, if you're good at connecting people, we want to get a welcome desk up and running. And we're looking for someone to man that welcome desk on Sundays. You can email the office and if you're interested in that. So then the question is, well, how do I stay faithful to my calling? How do I keep doing those good works using the gifts that God has given me for his purposes? Samson showed us just about everything not to do. Um, Obviously, we don't start seeking revenge. Sin never makes life easier. It always complicates. It never makes things easier. So then how do we stay faithful? Well, first of all, trust God. Trust God. I know you're like, oh, duh, Chad. I, I would get that. See, you had to trust God when you became a Christian. And, and hear me out on this. You trusted God when you became a Christian, but you didn't stop trusting God. You don't check the box because walking with God, living out the plans that he has for your life, it takes day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, trusting God in everything. Uh, I came across an article by a a licensed psychotherapist when I was preparing for this. Because I think one of the hardest times to trust God is when we have to make a choice. And there's about 12,000 career paths out there right now for millennials. Um, I came across this article and uh, it's about a woman who specializes in in counseling the millennial generation. It's like 23 to 38. And uh, she said something very interesting. She said, 90% of my patients are between the ages of 23 and 38, the rest are usually parents of millennials. She said over the last five years of practice, she's noticed a dominant theme when it comes to the clusters of problems about which these millennials keep coming to seek help. They say, I have too many choices and I can't decide what to do. What if I make the wrong choice? Now, I don't think you have to be a millennial to have struggled with this. I'm 45, and I can tell you, uh, it's tough when you've got multiple job offers, when you've got all these things going on. And see, this is when your trust in God is going to most be challenged, because when you became a Christian, you started receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And He will enable you To make good choices, he will. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But we can trust God because at the end of the day, guess what? Even to not make a choice is a choice. So we can trust God in those crisis decision moments. We can trust the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. But again, that doesn't mean things are going to be easy. So number two is expect difficulty. Just expect it. Difficulty and challenge is part of the Christian curriculum. Whenever I started seminary, I'll never forget what they told me. They said, you know, suffering is part of the syllabus that we failed to include when you came here to go to seminary. They were right. I mean, we didn't have any idea how we were going to pay for this thing. We quit our jobs and we moved to Texas. If I had known what it was going to be like when I got there, I would not have gone. Because it was rough. It was financial hardship. It was, it was marriage hardship. There was all kinds of hardship. There were roaches in this place we were living in. It was, it was bad. And uh, I'll never forget, when I got to the point where I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'll never forget a man by the name of Dr. It was Dr. Campbell. He was one of the presidents of Dallas Seminary. He was preaching chapel that morning, and he got up on the stage and he said three words I will never, ever forget Impossible, improbable, done. And he could not have been more right. When life seems impossible, it's impossible for you to carry out whatever it is that you're doing, you're sick of teaching, you're sick of adding numbers, you're sick of whatever it is. Marriage is just too hard. Parenting is just too hard. Whatever it is I mean it seems too hard. It seems impossible. Hang in there. Then it may seem improbable. I just don't think it's going to work out. Hang in there. Before you know it, done. He was right. He was absolutely right. But expect difficulty when you are doing the work of God because there's evil forces working against you. So expect difficulty. And then finally, be in community. Be in community. Uh, One thing I couldn't help but notice as I was going through this passage about Samson is it seemed like he was utterly alone in everything he was doing. He had his parents there. He should have listened to their counsel, but he didn't. He married this Philistine woman anyway, and we saw how that went. But he was alone. He was trying to do this thing by himself. You know, Satan is like this roaring lion, the Scriptures teach us, seeking whom he may devour. Now, who do the lions tend to want to devour. Their first objective is to separate one animal from the herd. And then they want to pounce. And that's what Satan will seek to do to you. I love what Eugene Peterson says about being in community. He says there could be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life, apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. I am not myself by myself. I know who I am because, see, I know who we are. Find a place to be in community. We will help you. We're we're in the process of hiring someone to help us in this. As First Baptist has grown larger, we have to grow smaller. And you need to be with fellow Christians, doing life with fellow Christians. So putting this all together, stay faithful by trusting God, expecting difficulty, and finally being in community, being in community. Please pray with me. Lord, we, we have been given good works to do. Lord, you have gifted us for tasks that you expect to be done. And Lord, I pray that we will not become weary in doing good, that we would keep our hand to the plow, that we would use the gifts that you've given us, that we wouldn't forsake gathering together. God, help us to encourage each other in this. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being our example in how to do this. And prepare our hearts now as we go into communion with both you and each other. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.